The following podcast is sponsored by Financial Sense Wealth Management. To learn more about our investment services, go to financialsense.com or give us a call at 888-486-3939. Relief tonight for the family and friends of the two Americans released by Hamas and safely in Israel. Mother and daughter, Judith and Natalie Renan kidnapped by Hamas in that terror attack two weeks ago. The State Department confirming today that they were released right along the border of the Gaza Strip there. They're now reuniting with family in Israel as we speak. Rising tensions after a U.S. Navy destroyer shot down three cruise missiles and several drones launched by Iranian-backed Houthi rebels in Yemen. For the first time, the U.S. taking military action to defend Israel The Pentagon saying the missiles were launched from Yemen northward, potentially towards Israel. U.S. President Joe Biden has urged Americans to support tens of billions of dollars in funding for Israel and Ukraine, saying they were fighting for democracy. In a rare speech from the White House's Oval Office, he stressed that backing both was vital for U.S. national security. Biden said the world was looking to America for leadership and that the U.S. couldn't afford to abandon its allies now. New restrictions announced in China could be unwelcome news for the growing electric vehicle market. Beijing said on Friday it will require export permits for some graphite products to protect national security. It's the latest move by the country to control supplies of critical minerals in response to challenges over its global manufacturing dominance. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov today met with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un in Pyongyang, setting the stage for a possible visit of President Vladimir Putin to North Korea. Before meeting with Kim, Lavrov talked with North Korean Foreign Minister Choi Son-hee and thanked North Korea for its, quote, unwavering and principled support for Russia's war on Ukraine. There are a bunch of headwinds dead ahead. You got potential federal government shutdown. You got higher oil prices and now the higher interest rates. I do expect growth to slow as we make our way towards the end of the year into next. So really, really strong growth up to this point in time. But I, I suspect that we'll start to see, see things throttling back here pretty soon. This is the Financial Sense News Hour. Now, here's the Financial Sense News Team. It was a negative week for the financial markets as all three major indexes ended the week with losses. The losses were not just in stocks, bonds also got hammered as yields rose across the board, with the 30 year Treasury bond crossing over 5% and the 10 year note closely behind. Credit spreads are also widening as risk mount in the economy, with inflation remaining sticky, mortgage rates at close to 8%, and fears of a widening war in the Middle East and rising oil prices all weighing in on the financial markets this week. Recession fears are once again back on the table. Meanwhile, a flood of new debt by the Treasury is driving yields higher as the U.S. deficit explodes with massive spending by the administration. We crossed $33 trillion in debt in September 19th, and a month later, we're close to $33.7 trillion, having added $700 billion of new debt in just a month. Hi, everyone. I'm Jim Poplov, and welcome to a special edition of the Financial Sense News Hour. 
My special guests are Professor Simon Michaud. He's Associate Professor at Geological Survey of Finland, and Robert Bryce, author, journalist, and documentary film producer. Our discussion today is the coming mineral shortages, the future energy crisis, and a scramble for strategic minerals, and why there is no plan behind a green transition, and why it's failing, and the consequences for economies and the markets. But first, let's find out the stories moving the markets this week with Ryan Poplava. Week's news in the financial markets was mainly related to continued geopolitical uncertainty and rising rate concerns. Economic releases this week showed investors consider good as bad and bad as bad. The spotlight fell on Chairman Powell Thursday regarding monetary policy, and earnings announcements showed a mostly negative effect in key sectors. So let's begin. It was a week of losses on Wall Street as geopolitical concerns continue to remain high related to the Israel and Hamas conflict. President Biden in Israel for a summit was canceled after Tuesday's bombing of a Gaza hospital killed hundreds. The 10-year Treasury yield hit a fresh annual high to 4.9% on the day, sending stocks lower. Thursday at the Economic Club of New York, Federal Reserve Chairman Powell gave a speech that caused volatile reactions in both stocks and bonds. He said the FOMC is moving carefully given the uncertainties and risks and how far we have come, meaning rising rates aggressively. We've been hearing for several other Fed officials over the past couple of weeks as they attempt to jawbone down the dollar in rates, stating that financial conditions have tightened because of the jump in long-term rates, allowing the Fed to continue its interest rate pause before making its next move. However, yields shot higher on the day during the question and answer portion of his speech when Powell answered that economic evidence is not telling us that we are too tight yet with our policy. It might be that rates haven't been high enough for long enough. The probability of another hike before the end of the year fell for November down to 0% and December to 298 from the previous day's levels, while the probability of a rate cut in June of next year went up to 51% from 41. The 10-year Treasury note settled just shy of 5% at 4.99 on the day. Friday, ahead of any possible escalation to the Israel-Hamas conflict, investors drove a risk-off trade, selling pretty much everything, while the S&P 500 held up just above its 200-day moving average while the 10-year Treasury yield held just below 5%. It was trading at the end of the day, last I checked, at 4.92%. From a technical standpoint, these are some key levels for stocks and bond investors. A break in any of these will likely continue the existing trends of weakness in stocks and bonds, while some momentum divergence and sentiment indicators, like the number of puts being purchased over calls, give me some confidence that a rally could be nearby. On the economic front, good is bad and bad is bad. Retail sales were up 0.7% month over month, beating estimates for September. The response lifted yields, causing the S&P 500 to close unchanged. But small cap and mid cap got a nice bid on the economic news. The takeaway is a consumer that isn't shying away from higher prices, and it should reflect a stronger third quarter GDP figure. Total industrial production increased 0.3% month over month in September, with soft manufacturing output still as the UAW strike drags on. The NAHB housing market index fell to 40 from a revised 44 in September, and in September, existing home sales fell to an annual rate of 3.96 million home sales 
from 4.04 million previously. September leading economic indicators fell to a negative 0.7 from a revised negative 0.5. Regional manufacturing numbers were mixed with a drop in the October Empire survey to negative 4.6 from a positive 1.9 and a rise in the Philadelphia survey to negative 9 from negative 13.5. The other big news was the drop in unemployment claims to 198,000 from revised 211,000 previously. On the same day, Powell said economic evidence suggests policy isn't high enough for long enough. Finally, let's touch on some earnings and company highlights this week, starting off with NVIDIA, which was down 4.7% on Monday on news that the Biden administration will put more restrictions on China's ability to purchase advanced semiconductors. NVIDIA responded, it didn't think the new rules would have a meaningful impact like it said on the previous rules that were made. Wednesday, United Airlines was down 7.9% and J.B. Hunt Transport fell 6.2% after issuing fourth quarter profit warnings tied to higher costs and geopolitical uncertainty. J.B. Hunt said it still sees a freight recession in our future. Morgan Stanley was down 6.8% after some disappointing results from its wealth management division, causing weakness in the financial sector Wednesday. Further in financials on Friday, Regions Financial and Comerica were down after reporting quarterly results, leading the financial sector down yet again. Tesla fell 9.3% after missing earnings and revenue estimates, while Netflix rose 16.1%, being the big highlight this week, beating subscriber addition estimates. Thus far, 17% of the companies in the S&P 500 have reported results, and according to FactSet, 73% have beat earnings estimates which is below the five-year average, right around 77%. The blended earnings decline, including reported and estimate earnings, is showing a decline of 0.4% growth compared to earnings growth of a positive 0.3% just the week prior, and earnings a decline of negative 0.3% at the end of the third quarter. So at the beginning of the earnings season, negative 0.3, where we're at right now, a decline of negative 0.4%. The downward revision to estimates over the past week was related to two companies in the healthcare sector, which offset the positive surprises during the week, according to FactSet. As of now, the best earnings growth is stemming from the communication services sector, followed by the consumer discretionary sector, with losses in earnings mainly coming from the energy and material sectors, surprisingly, with energy prices as high as they are. That covers this week's movement in stocks higher yields, geopolitical risk concerns, and a continued flight to safety in gold and the dollar, while the earnings season shows that investors aren't that impressed. We kick off the bulk of the earnings season over the next two weeks with a slew of high-tech bellwether names that can move the market. So be on the lookout for those, and of course, continued news on the Israel-Hamas conflict influencing a flight to safety in the financial markets. Well, as the war continues in Gaza, hundreds of hostages are still being held captive by Hamas, including Americans that haven't yet been accounted for. To discuss this with us today is well-known geopolitical strategist Peter Zion. So the fact that this attack happened at all, that Hamas was able to plan for six different modes of transport and launch attacks in 40 different locations, that should have never happened. The Israeli intelligence services, this is the number one thing they watch and And it's right on their border. So to think that they've failed that completely indicates that their operational intelligence on Hamas is quite limited. Uh, And that means when it comes to going after the perpetrators, 
The only way for them to get the information they need is to go into Gaza and go in hard. And that means house-to-house fighting through a zone with 2.3 million million people over a territory that's about twice the size of the District of Columbia. That's not a program that'll be done in three weeks or three months. Uh, This is probably something that's going to be keeping them busy for at least a couple of years. To listen to this full interview, in addition to gaining access to all of our premium content airing during the week, go to financialsense.com and hit the subscribe button. Financial Sense Wealth Management has been named as one of the top investment advisory firms in the U.S. by the Financial Times. Let us put our financial expertise to work for you. Contact Financial Sense Wealth Management today at 888-486-3939 or email us at grow at financialsense.com. Advisory services offered through Financial Sense Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Financial Sense Securities, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Both companies doing business as Financial Sense Wealth Management. Well, there are key dates, if you're an environmentalist, that the world is focusing on. The year 2030, when carbon emissions should be reduced by 50%, and then totally carbon-free by 2050. But is this a reality that will come in play? We don't think so, and we're going to talk about it. Joining me on the show today is Simon Michaud. He's Associate Professor at Geological Survey of Finland, and Robert Bryce, author, journalist, and public speaker. Gentlemen, uh, let's begin with you, Simon, because you're addressing, in my mind, some of the key issues to make a green transition. Usually, as I've written in my article, energy transitions from wood to coal took several centuries, from coal to oil took 50 to 70 years. We're trying to do this in 10 years. Let's talk about the realities of the raw materials needed that just aren't there. Well, okay. Hello, my name's Simon Michaud, Associate Professor of the Geological Survey of Finland, and I've been looking at uh, the physical realities of if we were to transition to the fu- fully transit phase-out fossil fuels, what would that look like? And so I've actually assembled some numbers. Yes, assumptions were being made, but those assumptions are based on what our policy be- makers believe is going to happen. And the simple answer is the task before us is much, much larger than we thought much, much, much larger, and we don't have the resources on the ground. We simply don't. And and, and when I say resources, we don't have the money, we don't have the time, and we don't have the physical resources either, right? So so this is a can of worms which diagnoses that when we actually are forced into this transition, which I believe will happen anyway, that we will panic and react rather than respond and plan. You know, one of the issues you're, you're talking about, you've talked about the resources necessary. The head of Freeport McMoran at a London Metals Conference talked about the dearth of discoveries over the last decade. They've been declining. I think the peak of production and discoveries was 1992. And basically, she was saying, if we don't do something really quick here, we're not going to have the copper that goes in to make all this happen. And I wonder if you might address some of this because copper, silver, lithium, cobalt, it's not just that we don't have enough of it and one country seems to be dominating it like China. But the other thing is here in the United States, you can't open up a copper mine. They keep shutting them down or turning them down. So how is this going to take place when we need something and we don't have access to it? It's important to remember, what do we mean by copper reserves and resources? 
most copper is actually really, really fine grained, like less than like a, a hundredth of a micron in size. And it's really, really small uh, particles. Like, And it's, it's in background mineralization. We don't have the technology to grind that fine um, in any large quantities. Like you do it in small scales, but not, not in large quantities. And certainly not in an economic context. So, for example, the entire Andes mountain range is a co- one big copper deposit that's really, 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 really low grade. So what we're actually looking at is how much copper can we access in a viable context? And I don't just mean economically viable. I mean, like, like, like from a technology point of view, an energy consumption point of view. We've got these, these massive requirements for copper, but we've mined out all the good high-grade deposits. And now we've got the massive low-grade hard-to-work deposits that will consume a lot of energy to get hold of. So, so I, I call this the, the three-way pull. Well, it's actually four ways. You've got the minerals in the ground. You've got the energy needed to extract those minerals. You've got the technology that you're going to use the energy to extract those minerals. And the fourth point is the, is the monetary system or the finance or the economics to actually make all that happen in the first place. So when you're actually talking about one of these things, you've got to talk about the other three, right? So we've got minerals, technology, energy, and money. They're all interlinked and you can't really sort of split them apart, really. And I want to talk about something, Robert, that you'll address because they're really pushing wind and solar, which we know doesn't work everywhere. You got to have sun and you got to have wind. But more than that, it's not just that the Greens are pushing this, but good luck. You've documented the number of localities that have turned away wind projects and solar projects. It's like, well, everybody loves clean as long as it comes from somewhere else and I don't have to look at it. Well, there's a lot to discuss here, Jim, and particularly in the wake of this uh, Hamas's, uh, you know, brutal uh, terror attack in Israel, because I think this underscores a lot of these issues that we're discussing now, particularly mineral security, metal security, energy security. All of them are now going to be coming more to the fore just as they did 50 years ago during the first Yom Kippur War. Now we're in the second Yom Kippur War. National security and energy security are two sides of the same coin. Energy is the economy. And the U.S. is in a better position, I would argue, today, and so is Israel, than it was 50 years ago. But nevertheless, these issues are top of mind. So back to the original question you you talked about, Jim, which is the issue of this, oh, we're going to do all of this by 2030. And I just published a piece on my Substack, robertbryce.substack.com, in which I mentioned that Michael Bloomberg, the 11th richest man on the planet, announced last month that he's giving $500 million to some of the biggest climate activist groups in America to push for the closure of all of the remaining coal plants and half of the natural gas power plants in America by 2030, which is the date that you mentioned earlier. This is a date with suicide. This is a cultural suicidal kind of Packed and it's being funded by the oligarchs like Bloomberg, like Lorene Powell Jobs, like John Doerr, like Jeff Bezos. They are the ones that are giving this massive amount of money to these NGOs. They're not green groups, they're not environmental groups, they're climate activist groups. And they have the sympathy of the media and they have effectively unlimited amounts of money to push this alt energy regime. And they are very effective. But I want to just I I think Simon's reporting on this has been really important because this idea that we're facing is, okay, yeah, we have this potential enormous demand for these metals and minerals. We'll talk about copper in just a second. 
but the ore that we're mining is lower and lower grade, which means we need more energy and that means more money to extract it and refine it to make it usable. But, you know, it, these are all coming together at the same time. What the counter indicators are, Jim, and, and Simon, I'm sure you've watched this as well, is that the price of copper has actually fallen this year. It's at $3.50, $3.60. So if it seems to me the market is looking at this and saying, yeah, we don't really think this is going to happen. Because if they were convinced, I would say, I would argue the price of copper would be going up, but instead it's falling, even though the miners themselves, and you mentioned Freeport Magmaran, are saying, we can't, we can't meet this demand. So there are a lot of counter indicators that are in the marketplace, whether it's the price of copper or some of these other cobalt, the prices are down dramatically. Um, it, 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 it's a confusing world. I'll say that with, I think, not fear of being contradicted by you or Simon. You know, this is an issue. You've got these global elites, billionaires that fly around in private jets, and they're also trying to cut back and make it hard to drill for oil. And you cannot do mining without diesel fuel. You take a look at those big loaders, the trucks, the crushers, all of that requires diesel fuel. So not only are they not allowing these mines to go into production or be put into production, but they're also trying to shut down the sources of energy that produces the minerals. I mean, this is absolutely insane. It, it is insane, Jim. And there is a very clear Malthusian aspect of this, right? And an anti-human aspect of this. But it is stunning that someone as sophisticated, at least in theory, as Michael Bloomberg is, would do this. And to your point, he has five private jets. He uh, Last year, those jets burned over 350,000 gallons of jet fuel, and he has a dozen houses. So there's this attitude of, oh, well, these, you know, the oligarchs kind of patting everyone else on the head saying, oh, well, we're going to fly in our private jets because we're better, or we know better, whatever it is. But it is a very dangerous time, I think, Jim. And I think that this, this fantasy around alt energy, these uh, constructs, these kind of uh, cultural ideas around the growth of alt energy and that we're going to power all of our economy on the whims and vagaries of the wind and the sun are, are a date with disaster. You know, it was interesting. I was doing some research for a recent article and I was taking a look at, I think it was China. They have like 52 coal plants, 24 under construction. India has 24, another eight under construction. So if we look at this climate change, which they keep selling, it was global cooling when I was in college, then it turned to global warming and now it's just climate change. So they're doing all this with this climate change mantra but how are they going to put this into effect and how long will this be before people just rise up? In my own state of California, we have power outs. The previous summer, the governor told us if you had an EV, don't charge it from nine to nine in the morning. <laughs> right. And that's only about five or 6% of the state's automobiles. What are they going to do by 2030 when you can't have diesel? In 2035, you can't have gasoline-powered cars. I just wonder how long it's going to be before people rise up and say, you know, this isn't working. Power outs, uh, gasoline prices in California are over $7 right now. How much longer? So I've got an opinion here that's building over time, that, but it's getting increasingly stronger as we go along. Most of the people I come in contact with absolutely believe in the green transition as it is. And they absolutely believe that this is what we should do and how we should do it. But when I actually sort of look at what they've got, they're always referring to the work of others. And usually 
the, um, when I came to Europe, for example, in 2015, I was quite sur surprised to find that even though Europe led the world in you know, phasing out fossil fuels, uh, that there was no feasibility study in the macro scale industrial reform to phase out fossil fuels. There's like there was no infrastructure plans. Like who's going to build these power plants? Where are they going to be? What kind are they going to be? What support infrastructure will go in? How will they be operated? What's their maintenance cycle? Uh, what kind would they be? None of that was there, not even conceptually. And as I've gone along and talked to people and presented my work as one thing, but then you talk to them after, you know, over a cup of coffee and you pick up these, these, these insights that are going on. And when they refer to things that they've been told by others, there is a group of very influential people behind the green transition who are managing an enormous amount of capital that really have a very pedestrian view of whether it's going to work or not. And what I'm starting to suspect, and, and this is very brutal, I'd like to be sort of proven wrong on this, is the entire green transition is a PR action to convince the average person that there is a plan. Because, because we've got these commitments of, say, like, you know, by 2030, carbon neutral. If we start committing to things like that, it means at some point we've got to do some work. Now, we're probably one political cycle away, or maybe sooner, I don't know, where the large block of the pu voting public will understand that to actually become carbon neutral, what physical actions are needed here? You know, how many power plants, what kind? Uh, if, if we go nuclear, how many nuclear power plants are we talking about? Lots. Uh, how long does it take to build a power plant? You know, uh, uh, solar panels, wind turbines. Ne never mind where we, where we get the material from. Who's going to pay for them? Who's going to build them? Who's going to install them? That's only a couple of years away. That's like that's you know six or seven years away now. And uh, if it takes, let's be conservative. If you were to build a coal-fired power station, you need about five or six years incubation time. Once we have all agreements and everyone knows what they're doing. A nuclear power plant has about seven years build time, but it takes about 30 because of all the permitting and monkey business associated with that. A solar uh, system is about, you know, two to three years incubation time and all that. But if we need like several hundred thousand of them, we're going to need more than four or five years. What I'm seeing is there is a lot of work to try and get solar panels and wind turbines out and green renewable power out there, Yes. But what's been installed so far is less than the system has actually expanded, and we have yet to actually phase out anything. So if we actually are serious in actually sort of replacing such a large amount of energy, that's a lot of work. At some point, the voting public are going to understand that that work has not been done and is not planned. It is simply not planned. So the whole thing is a PR exercise. There is a plan, but that's got, a, but that's got like a half-life. There'll, there'll come a point when that plan won't work anymore, and that's relatively soon. And those same people either don't are not aware of that or don't care, which implies we'll be distracted by something else. And that's what is starting to seriously concern me. Yeah, I'll, I'll add to what Simon said there, because uh, it is extraordinarily concerning. And I mentioned Michael Bloomberg, and I'm the hammer on this, because to me, you know, his support for these environmental groups or these NGOs, rather, is just so wrongheaded on so many levels. But to put a put the point on what Simon said, what what uh, Bloomberg's stated objective is to close all the coal plants and half of the gas-fired power plants in America by uh, in seven years. Well, those that quantity of energy is eighteen hundred terawatt hours a year. Eighteen hundred terawatt hours. If you assume one nuclear plant produces around ten terawatt hours, that's kind of high. It's kind of a mid-range, but let's just assume use that number. That means we would have to build 180 new nuclear power plants just in the next seven years to, you know, to put that number on what Simon is talking about here. 
this is just a radical there is no uh, there's no words that fit this other than radical agenda it is an extraordinarily radical agenda and it is being pushed by the biggest ngos in the country league of conservation voters rocky mountain institute sierra club all of which have budgets of over 100 million dollars per year but i think simon is in finland and in europe if you you watch what is going on the European leaders are backpedaling as fast as they can on all this net zero garbage. I mean, it is garbage. It's not going to happen, as Simon has said. But look what happened just in the last few weeks. The British Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, after coming in and saying, oh, I'm all in on net zero, said, oh, no, 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 we're going no, we're to be realistic. We're going to be pragmatic. Those are the words he used. And what happened? In the week after Sunak backpedaled, the Tories' uh, ratings in the polls went up four percentage points. All across Europe, politicians are recognizing what's going on in Poland, in Germany, in Sweden, uh, in Italy, in France, in the UK. They're looking around and saying the public doesn't like this. Look at the most recent elections in Germany, in Bavaria and Hesse. Big losses for the uh, incumbent party. So I think this is happening. And I think Europe is in the vanguard again. Will it, you know, will come some common sense come to California, Jim? I'm not holding my breath. We're getting worse when we take a look at it. You know, the other thing, if you just follow the logic that they're putting forth here, these artificial dates, 2030, 2050, the thing that I came to the conclusion, India's not buying into this. China's not buying into this. There's half the world's population. Africa is not buying into it. South America is not buying into it. So almost three quarters of the globe is not buying into this. They want a better lifestyle for their citizens. So how is climate change going to be affected by the United States and Europe if we're the only ones that are putting in these artificial constructs to, to save the planet? To me, it's inconsistent. There's also something to add here too. What we call about like a, a climate crisis, we're not actually even talking about the best path forward. For example, we are facing an ecological crisis, species die-off, ocean acidification, land degradation, right? That's the sort of stuff that we need to sort of go after. Instead, we're flogging ourselves on a carbon tax when we're addicted to carbon. When we're not even we don't even have our hands on the on the right levers in the right direction. And that's what I'm saying is that the, the, is the, the whole thing, is it misguided? Is it is it a, a nasty strategy to keep us quiet? You know, you know the, the, the people who actually control the money at the, at the hedge fund level, at the big hedge fund levels, they don't care about us at all. They're just interested in money for themselves and they'll, they'll happily make money out of tragedy. And so the whole thing is just sort of drifting forward in, in, in ways that, that quite you know, actually distresses me. And so I'm now working on the idea that, that society has to rebuild itself and reconstruct itself to a new set of rules. And part of that is we've got, got to restructure power and, and power, authority, and responsibility in a society sort of level. And so part of that is what do we do with our money? Where do we get our energy from? How do we manage our resources? What's our relationship uh, you know, with, with the natural environment? All of that is off the rails at the moment. And... I'm just sort of shaking my head in disbelief. Like Robert, you were saying, say, can this world get any crazier? Oh yes, this is nothing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, oh <laughs> uh, Let me build on what Simon said, and I'm not, I'm not quite as pessimistic as Simon. I, I'm incredibly optimistic about the future, as the late Molly Ivan said. I'm, I'm optimistic to the point of idiocy, and I'm optimistic about the U.S. I'm, I'm long America because of the natural advantages we have in terms of demographics, geography, natural resources. 
But I will agree absolutely with Simon on this issue of the money. And so who benefits from the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States? Well, it's follow the money, gentlemen, follow the money. This is the one of the oldest and ob- most obvious axioms in politics. Who benefits? Qui bono? Well, it's the big banks, the big law firms and big business. They're the ones with that are going to make money off the, the all these tax credits and giveaways from the Inflation Reduction Act. Wood McKenzie estimates that unless the IRA is reformed, the solar subsidies alone could total more than two trillion dollars. I mean, these are massive amounts of money. And who makes money off of all of these tax credits? The big banks at JP Morgan. Jamie Dimon recently just said, uh, oh, we need to reform the rules on eminent domain because we're not building enough wind and solar projects. Well, why did he do that? Why did he say that? Because JP Morgan is one of the biggest players in the tax equity finance business. He's talking his book. So I, I can't get any more cynical when it comes to these issues around climate change, because as I see it, the Inflation Reduction Act, all of these alt energy schemes are an excuse for big business to make a run on the treasury in the name of climate change. That's how I see it very clearly. And who benefits? Big business, big banks, big law firms. You know, it's interesting just to pick up on that because you have at some point last year, we saw with the Ukraine war, we saw a jump in the price of oil. We're seeing oil go back up now as it is. The president released, I think it was like 40% of the strategic petroleum reserves. Now we've got oil climbing back towards $90. I think it's going higher. Simon or Robert, what are we going to do when oil goes over 100 and we don't have much in reserves anymore to bring it down? The reality of these policies are going to start hitting home when people are paying, you know, we're $7 right now in California on gasoline. And I predict it won't be long before we're paying 8 and $10 a gallon. What we will do is wave your arms, run about, scream and shout right? There's going to be no plan. It's going to be one big old mess. What we should do is use that energy that we have left in an intelligent fashion to to, to ensure the long-term sovereignty and stability of our respective societies. That is, engineer and build the next energy infrastructure. That's what we should do. What we will do? Well, let's have another meeting and discuss it. In terms of building another energy infrastructure, let me just pick up on that, Simon. What would that look like? One of the reasons I'm so adamantly pro-nuclear is the lower material intensity. I've, I've coined what I call the iron law of power density, which says the lower the power density, the higher the resource intensity. We have to quit chasing this mirage of alt energy because for, for many reasons, but one of the key ones is a low power density, which means it requires more of the things that Simon has been discussing, more copper, more steel, more, more neodymium, iron, boron magnets, more rare earth elements, more steel in the ground, more concrete. We need high power density, which means nuclear all the way, 100%. We have to get serious about this. But I also think just one quick comment on the oil side of things. You know, it is remarkable what has happened in the United States thanks to the shale revolution. The drillers have just gotten incredible and, and, and have been able to engineer these enormous gains in efficiency from their drill rigs, from all of their processes, and able to produce more with less. So, yes, oil prices may well go up, but remember, the cure for high oil prices is high oil prices. And so, what we're seeing now, which is still pretty remarkable, I'm looking at the Brit, the Brit uh, uh, marker today. It's at ninety-one dollars. Well, that's lower than it was at one hundred and twenty in mid twenty-one. 
despite all of the recent craziness from Iran, Hamas, uh, and et cetera. So uh, again, more conflicting signals, I guess. I'll just reiterate that point. At some point, just like Freeport uh, McMorrin was talking about, we're going to start running out of these strategic materials. In fact, I think it wasn't too long ago, Elon Musk was telling mining companies, hey, if you have a lot of nickel, I'll sign a 10-year contract with you because I need that stuff. I'm not going to be making Teslas if I don't have access to these raw materials. I wonder if both of you would comment, China seems to understand this. They're going into South Africa. They're going into South America. And they're what I call encumbering resources. We'll go in. We'll help you. We'll spend some money on your infrastructure. But we want to tie long-term contracts to these strategic materials. I think they process, what, close to 85 90% of rare earths and other key materials. So they seem to get it. So I would suggest that the Chinese, I've been studying the Chinese plan. Like uh, Europe has a plan, the circular economy, where we talk in circles. And then schedule another meeting. Yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> see, see, sadly, I can't refute that. Um, the American system's um, rolling out multiple plans, but the Chinese developed a plan that we first saw in 2003, right? They actually understood the predicament we're in. And... Its current generation is made in China 2025. There's if you if you do a search for that, there's a there's a report called Made in China 2025. The final goal was made in China 2049. What they want uh, and what they're doing, and they've been applying all this time, is to control all things industrial. The word is control, not not occupy, control. All things industrial between heaven and earth where they see themselves as the apex of human existence. So if you want to do anything industrial, like buy a computer or own and operate a car, you've got to do business with the Chinese in some form. That's their objective. And which is, they have been making recommendations from the PRC government. And, and a few of these things I've documented, right, where they make directions to the private sector of where to where for capital to flow. And then the private sector then does what, the PRC government suggests and directs capital into these areas. And then then the PRC government will periodically nationalize a company. And so you've got this sort of sort of weird hybrid capitalist slash socialist system. Now you have to remember the Chinese approach to strategy is different to the Western approach. It, this this was originally done by the British and later by the Americans, but it's more like chess. Identify the adversary and take down the king. You know, take the mm. king out. That's the objective. Whereas the Chinese approach things like the game of Go, where it's it's uh, about how much territory you are taking over time, and it's a long game. And so they're thinking in terms of a, a hundred-year game of Go, where they're slowly taking over the entire industrial infrastructure, but they're going all over the world and they're buying ports and railways and power stations. And, you know, they're slowly cornering the market. And there's offtake agreements, uh, and they control a lot of the mining and and the and the refining and the smelting, and then the manufacturing of components. They dominate that as well. And so, it, lots of things manufactured in Europe is manufactured by component uh, using components manufactured in Southeast Asia, right? And so they've been quietly in the background engaging in a strategy, and they've been quite successful. So our leadership has the look of someone about to do something flamboyantly stupid, because. We've painted ourselves into a corner. 
I, I have to agree. I'll, I'll jump in here, Jim, because I mean, of, of the stupidity that is afoot. This uh, tying our this alt energy economy to the Chinese supply chains is perhaps the I don't know if it's the depth of stupid or the acme of stupid. It's uh, maybe both at the same time. But the, the Department of Commerce, I've written about this on my Substack, robertbrice.substack.com, um, about the fact that we're tying our industrial economy to Chinese supply chains. And in particular, let me just well, focus on EV supply chains and neodymium iron boron magnets. The International Energy Agency released a report just a few weeks ago. Then uh, what, what was their quote? That China dominates, here's the quote, the entire downstream EV battery supply chain. So it's something like 90% of the graphite that's needed in the batteries uh, in material processing. It's 60% of lithium, 50% of nickel, 60% of cobalt, 80, about 80% of graphite, cathodes, anodes, battery production, China dominates. But look at neodymium iron boron magnets. These are the key components in wind turbines and electric vehicles. Neodymium iron boron, this is a high coercivity uh, recipe in magnets. China controls 90% of the global market. Not only that, they control 100% of the global market for dysprosium and terbium, which are needed to dope those magnets so they work at high temperature. This is not just a threat to our auto sector. It's a threat to, the, uh, to our defense sector. When we have outsourced to China the, the supply of these critical magnets, which are used throughout missiles, all kinds of guidance systems, we're, we, we tied ourselves to China. What are these people, what are these politicians thinking? What China is not our friend. I'm not ba- here to bash China. China is going to take care of China, but Deng Xiaoping, to Simon's point, now 30 years ago said the Mideast has oil, we have rare earth elements, we're going to exploit them. And here we are 30 years later, to Simon's point, where the Chinese are saying, well, we're going to control the market. It's going to be made in China 2025. And that's their game. And we're meanwhile just sleepwalking into this idiocy that is being funded by the oligarchs and put into play by these big NGOs, none of whom are responsible for the affordability, reliability, or resilience of our systems. You talk about this, Robert, how electricity has lifted up the population of the world. You want to judge poverty, look at societies that have electricity, that gives them light, that gives them cooling, that gives them heating, all the kind of things that this energy system produces. Simon may be right about, you know, some of these issues that we may face a crash because of these these concurrent events coming together. But we don't have good leadership. I mean, truly, I'm not a Republican. I'm not a Democrat. I am disgusted. But Biden versus Trump again in 2024, there are 330 million people in this country. This is the best we can do. Only these two old cats is the best we can do. Lord, help us. So, but if you if you if you think about it, if if the existing leadership is optimized to how the system is now, right? How it is now, the uh, the, the leadership is optimized to that to the point where anything else is going to struggle to survive. If the incoming industrial era is going to be so radically different, including a different energy infrastructure which ripples out and changes everything else, then the leadership is going to have to operate to a different paradigm. So that means almost by definition, almost that the existing leadership is not mentally fit to lead us into the next era because they won't see it. So our true leaders that we actually need are all around us now, but no one can see them. And everyone in positions of authority at the moment is fundamentally useless. So we're talking about, uh, Simon, you talk about the limitations of doing this alt energy. We just simply don't have the minerals. We probably don't have the 
energy and oil to build out this system. And, and I'd like to get comments from both of you. If you were president and you were able to affect something in terms of an energy transition, an alternate energy system, what would that look like to you? And what should we be doing to get there? Okay, I've got an answer to that. Uh, Rob, do you want to go first? Because I keep I keep cutting you off, mate. So why don't you go first? Oh, oh, oh no, my my friend, uh, uh, Aussie's first all the time. All right. Oh, Aussie's first. Someone write that down. Okay. <laughs> I do have a solution vector for this. Every single energy system that I have looked at has a bottleneck in scale-up to actually meet this. Oil has been so magnificent in uh, delivering energy to us in a useful form. Right. So one of those systems, is it wind, hydro, is it um, oil, is it gas, is it coal, is it nuclear? One of them has to evolve into a new set of limitations. And the most the most useful one for me is nuclear, an evolution of nuclear. Existing nuclear has its logistical problems, right? Uh, and one, one is time. It won't be able to expand fast enough because the systems are so large. So I've been looking at a number of very interesting, innovative nuclear ideas that might be able to help us. If I was president, you poor bastards. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm a researcher. I understand the idea of research, technology, science, and engineering. What I would do is I would establish a series of innovation hubs, not just one, but a whole string of them. And each innovation hub would have a specific task to do. It would hit a specific theme. And each theme would be something like develop a new energy paradigm. Right, and you get every single unorthodox idea that you've ever heard of and you put them into the same place with the same theme so they can cross-fertilize. You resource them, and then you open source the ideas. Because if we move into a world of 8 billion people and growing, and some people have got useful stuff and some people don't, that's called give war a chance. If we can actually sort of get some ideas out there where, where the, uh, the average person can see the people next to them as their solution, not their problem, they might decide to work together. So what I would do if I was president, you poor bastards, develop a series of innovation hubs, but each to hit a particular target, but that target fits a, a, an overall theme based on our understanding of the, of the problems. They don't have to chew up billions and billions of dollars. Right, they, they don't have to because a lot of these ideas are out there and, and people have been working on them already. They just need to have the right people in the right place. And we're probably talking about tens of millions, which is peanuts compared to what we're printing on a day-to-day -day basis, to get some results. And here's the key. You don't make a complex system ad hoc. It, it just, just doesn't appear. You've got to start with a simple system, build its architecture based on your understanding of your long-term goal and let it grow over time. So what you do is you first out work out what that architecture of the post-fossil fuel system should be based on these innovation hubs, telling people what they do, right? And then you actually then put the infrastructure in place and you allow it to grow on a small scale. So instead of saying, we will now put 100, million, 100 billion into plan X, we want more cups in the tea room, you know, or, or something stupid like that, which is what I often hear. You start small and you start targeted and then you let it grow. And over time, if the rest of the system starts to struggle and break apart, right, the innovations that work will prosper because they, they're actually geared for the new environment. And then they will slowly take over time. That's how I would do it. 
Yeah, well, uh, so first, uh, let me just say uh, the idea of Simon as president is indeed frightening. Um, but uh, he probably he probably require Australian rules football as the national sport or something you know like that, which I kind of might I might agree with that. If were I president, I would say the designated hitter rule in baseball is gone. If you're going to play, you have to hit. <laughs> Ohio Tani can hit the baseball. Every other pitcher should be able to. You know, you got to hit. Sorry, oh, you don't. You're not good at it. Well, maybe you need to get in the batting cage. Okay, so first things first, I would eliminate the designated hitter rule. But I think I, I'm in complete agreement with with uh, Simon on the need to uh, go full bore on nuclear energy. And this is just it's such an obvious way to go. But again, I, I, I think that the 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 decadence of American society and it is a decadent system now that we've evolved into with these lavishly funded NGOs that have no responsibility, no uh, you know, their their ability to degrade our energy system is incredibly dangerous and they are uniformly anti-nuclear and that's why I'm bringing it up. But we need a president, we need a leadership and I will be that guy. I will pound the pulpit all day long <laughs> to say we need nuclear energy and we need to do it now. President Biden has been president now for two years, has not mentioned the word nuclear energy, not one time, not once. Why not? He's a Democrat, right? This is part of the Democratic Party, you know, their aversion to nuclear energy. But I think this idea of hubs, like uh, uh, Simon said, is right. But I also think that, you know, we need a, an, a, a focused effort that is going to require a very close alignment between government and the private sector, which a lot of politicians don't like, particularly the Republicans. But if we're going to make nuclear work, that is what it has to be. And that's what we see in China, which is leading the world in the deployment of nuclear. They're building 21 or 22 reactors now. But it's because of the and the same with Ross Adam. The U.S. has, the the Russians and the Chinese have stolen a march on the U.S. They are now leading the world in nuclear energy. The Russians are are enriching 47% of the world's supply of uranium. We're too dependent on the, we are are dependent on the Russians for the importation of 25% of our nuclear fuel. This has to stop. We have to get very sober and we have to get busy, but it's going to take bipartisan decadal support. And I've made the same point now for more than a decade and I'm going to keep making it because it's so obvious. So this is what we have to do. Gentlemen, as we conclude here, some final statements from both of you, and then tell our listeners how they can follow your work. Final thoughts. We are encouraged to think and see the challenges that are in front of us. Or either there are no challenges, but then we see them anyway. Uh, there is a sense of panic and anxiety. And there's a lot of blame going around, which which has the net effect of paralysis. I would encourage people that if you wish to see a new world uh, that's worth leaving to our grandchildren, that we put aside our past propensities to be anxious, angry, and hateful, come together into teams and groups and actually try and innovate our way out of this. The second thing I would suggest is every time we try and talk about this, it's usually we want a solution for 8 billion people. But most of those 8 billion people won't engage with these issues, let alone agree or or help. Find a small number of like-minded people and get some useful work done. Also, there are solutions out there and solution vectors out there if you choose to see them and engage with them. We probably don't have enough time to do this comfortably, if at all, but we can at least have a go. Uh, there is a way forward. It's just going to be rough. If we don't have people to step up 
and take up this challenge, we're done. If we do have people to step up and take this challenge, at least some of us will get through. That's where my head's at at the moment. And Simon, if they want to follow you, you want to give out your website? Yeah, so I've got a website, um, simonmichaud.com, all lowercase. Uh, I try and put all my work up on that. Um, it's only got some of my work, but it's the stuff that I, I'm allowed to put up. Most of my career has been confidential, so it's only really in the work in the last you know five, five years or so. It's up before that. It's all confidential. Sorry. Uh, um, yes, and so things for me are evolving. My work is evolving, and that's where I should put the put the outcomes. And now you, Robert. Sure. Well, let me just say, and I'm I'm not you know here to flatter Simon. I, I admire the work that he's done. I think it's really important, and it's been uh, clarifying to follow his work. So I encourage everyone to to look at the work that he's done, and and particular the scale that Simon underscores, because I think this is absolutely essential. And that leads to my point about you know what do I hope your listeners, Jim, what you know, what what would I hope for them? Know your numbers, know your units, know your scale of the systems that we're talking about, because we live in a world that is in actual, in, in the physical world, we live in a network of networks and it's incredible. I mean, I went to the grocery store, the supermarket with my wife the other day, and I was just talking with a friend of mine. He's a Canadian guy. And he said, you know, we were talking about just the amazement. And I looked around and I was in front of the wine section and in the in the supermarket, and there were bottles from Canada, Germany, Italy, France, Australia, Chile. It was just a wonder. How do they all get here? It's just incredible. But that's just wine. Our energy and power systems are similar in that we rely on these networks to provide all of these energy and power services, and it's almost miraculous. So what do I want? I, I encourage your readers to know their units, know their numbers, know the scale of our systems. Read my work. I'm proud of the work that I do. I'm, I've, I've written six books. Buy them. You don't have to read them. Just buy them. <laughs> Follow me on Substack, robertbryce.substack.com. But educate yourself. Yeah, but 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 follow you know follow people like uh, uh, Jesse Osabel, Václav Smil, Simon Michaud, uh, others that are looking at this with a very sober eye. And then I'll end with this: I'm a, I'm more optimistic than Simon. I think we are stumbling the right direction. Canada has done an about face on nuclear and is now going to deploy new nuclear at scale. Western Europe, uh, Romania, Poland, et cetera, they are going to go nuclear. So I'm encouraged, and I hope your people are too. All right. Well, gentlemen, I want to thank you both for your time. Great stuff. And I'm just so glad there are people like you out there getting the truth out here to wake people up. Gentlemen, all the best, and thanks for joining us. Always a pleasure, Jim. Likewise. Well, the best-selling book of the year on the subject of money is by a recurring guest, Lynn Alden. It's titled Broken Money, Why Our Financial System is Failing Us and How We Can Make It Better. So, Lynn, there's lots of books out there on the nature and evolution of money. We've spoken with a number of different guests about some of their takes on money. What was the unique story or key insight that you really wanted to get across to readers through your book? I would say there's probably two or three major themes rather than just one. A key theme is that technology drives money. So changes in technology change what we use as money. And so during the commodity era, as we got better at making certain commodities that rendered them less good as money than other commodities that are that are scarcer, that are that our technology is less capable of making more of. And then also once we invented the telegraph, we introduced speed as a really key variable for money. And so basically as technology evolved over time, 
we gravitated towards different monies. I think the clear two paths ahead are either central banks increasingly want to do central bank digital currencies, or there's open source ones. And if they continue to prove robust and decentralized and secure, they are a, a growing threat. And unlike a centralized digital currency, they can actually unify different currency blocks. To listen to this full interview, in addition to gaining access to all of our premium content airing during the week, go to financialsense.com and hit the subscribe button. Are you tired of earning a minimal interest rate on your investments? Are you looking for a higher rate of return on your money? Financial Sense Wealth Management has put together a portfolio of high-dividend-paying blue chips, high-quality interest-paying bonds, and preferred stocks. Our income account portfolio is specifically designed to help meet the needs of retirees, pension funds, and foundations looking to increase income and reduce taxes. To learn more, contact us at 888-486-3939 or email grow at financialsense.com. Advisory services offered through Financial Sense Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Financial Sense Securities, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Both companies doing business as Financial Sense Wealth Management. Well, today we're going to discuss the Israeli-Palestinian war, what led up to it, where things are currently, and how the war may evolve from here. Our guest to speak with us about this is Jacob Shapiro. He's partner and director of geopolitical analysis at Cognitive Investments, and he's also an expert on the Middle East. The latest numbers, there's nearly 200 hostages that are being held by Hamas, and that includes infants and young children as well who have already been videotaped. So it's a very ugly situation. Obviously, it's an international disaster as well because there's been a number of people even outside of Israel that have been affected or killed. Let's start with the events that led up to this situation. What's your perspective on that? think that this conflict in some ways is unprecedented in the amount of imagery that we have. For instance, I mean, Sudan has been fighting a civil war for months now, and I think the death toll has risen over 9,000 or is closing in on 10,000, something like that. And I assure you that everything that is happening in that war is just as brutal and gruesome. It just wasn't all caught on, on YouTube and on TikTok. And one of the things that's really disturbing about this conflict is that it was. Um, and I know that me personally, somebody who has to deal with you know open source information, read all these articles and watch all these um, videos, it, it creates vicarious trauma through yourself. Like you didn't go through it yourself, but if you watch a video of some of those children who have been kidnapped, it's almost impossible to think about things objectively and it's going to haunt you for days afterwards. So I would give your listeners the same advice that I've given myself over the past couple of days. Take care of yourself. Practice good mental hygiene. When you watch those videos, don't assume that it's not going to have an impact on you. If you find yourself angry or anxious or scared for random reasons, or you want to have a political fight you know, with every single person that you meet, like it's totally natural, but just, you know, um, it, it's really an unprecedented environment from that point of view. And I would just tell people to, to be gentle with yourselves and be self-aware because um, it can sneak up on you. But um, in terms of where this conflict begins, you and I were joking, we could begin thousands of years ago if you want. Um, but I think the real proximate place to begin is with Israel's unilateral decision in 2005 to withdraw from the Gaza Strip. So Gaza was conquered by Israel in 67 and 73 in the course of those wars with Egypt and other Arab nations. Before that, the Gaza Strip was run by Egypt. And the Israeli government, led at the time by Ariel Sharon, decided to completely withdraw Israel from the Gaza Strip. And it was a really, really striking moment. I mean, you had Israeli soldiers basically pulling Israeli citizens out of the Gaza Strip against their will. I mean, they, they took out towns, took out all sorts of things there. And it was a very, very controversial moment in Israel's history. 
And it was probably part of Sharon's general plan to unilaterally disengage with the Palestinian issue altogether. The next shoe to drop, everybody thought, was going to be the West Bank. The problem was, um, I can't remember if it was a heart attack or a stroke or both, but Sharon uh, was incapacitated from a health perspective. And nobody that came after him was able to follow through on whatever his vision was for the policy. So you end up in this place where... Israel has disengaged from Gaza. It has an ambiguous relationship going forward with the West Bank. And then in the midst of all this, part of the disengagement of, from Gaza was for the Palestinians to have elections. And the Palestinians chose Hamas. Um, and those elections were sponsored in part by the United States and other countries. And I remember very vividly after the Palestinians chose Hamas, the world recoiled and said, well, we didn't mean you could elect these guys. And you get this de facto Hamas dictatorship in Gaza Strip split with Fatah, which is a more secular organization, which runs the West Bank. And then Israel occasionally um, having to go in and bomb Gaza because they started launching rockets at different points in time. So that that's where all of this goes back to. I think Israeli disengagement from Gaza in 2005 is um, is the original sin, if you will, of all this. But what we saw, or what we have seen over the past week, it's it's been so different from anything else Hamas or any and really any Palestinian group has done to Israel in the entire history of this conflict. I mean, this was they had very sophisticated intelligence. They had sophisticated methods and planning capabilities. Um, they had, you know, they used drones and rockets to let an advanced team get past the border fence and, um, you know, hit Israeli intelligence control and hit some of these undefended towns and things like that. We can talk about why those towns were undefended if you want, but r- really an escalation here from Hamas's point of view and a real change in in tactics. Uh, no Palestinian group has ever done this to to Israel in quite this way. Yeah, actually, I would like to get your thoughts on why they were not defended, because a lot of people are saying that this is a huge blunder on the part of Israel and the Israeli Defense Force and not having greater protections for these kibbutz, right? These farm communes, of course, the music festival itself. So how did that happen? It absolutely was a failure. So I'm not going to mince words here, but I am going to downplay it a little bit. So the real the real skill from Hamas or the real increase in Hamas's tradecraft here is they were able to keep it secret and they had some very specific targets in mind. So they went after bases or intelligence centers that made it more difficult for the IDF to respond in real time. So in that point of view, it's less about Israel's intelligence failure and more you know, Hamas had a stepwise increase in its capabilities and Israel wasn't aware of the increase in, in, in those capabilities. I'll also say, and this goes back to you know the first point I made about the the grisly and terrible videos that we're all watching. Not every town or not every kibbutz fell to Hamas. So these were really the the ones that fell, like Beiri or the or the the music festival. These were places that were relatively unguarded. There are also stories of places and towns in Kibbutzim where a couple soldiers with guns were able to fight off Hamas. So it didn't seem like Hamas was really willing to go at it. They went they went opportunistically after the softest targets they could after they hit. Um, some of those bases and those things to knock things out. The other part of this, though, is that the IDF was focused on other areas. So internally, Israel has been incredibly divided at a domestic level for years. And Israel's been very worried about the increase in violence and unrest in the West Bank. So a lot of the IDF was focused on the West Bank or was up north on the border with Lebanon and things like that. Israel did not think that Hamas was going to do anything like this. So in that, so that's why it took so long for the Israeli government, for the Israel Defense Forces to respond in that so, sort of way. And I would say that was the big failure here. The big failure uh, for Israel was complacency. 
was thinking that they had the measure of Hamas and knew them and that they weren't going to attack and that they could focus on other issues. And part of that goes back to the divisiveness within within Israel. And this, I think, is where maybe Hamas has made its biggest miscalculation. That divisiveness is gone. Maybe Netanyahu's political career will suffer after the war, after whatever happens. But here today, there's a a unity war cabinet. There is a unified sense of purpose within Israel for revenge and to get rid of the security threat. Um, And that wasn't true even a week ago. In some ways, the biggest strength that the Palestinians had a week ago, I would have said, was Israel's completely divided. The divisiveness was, was reaching epic levels. And usually when Jewish polities collapse in this land, it's when the Jewish factions start fighting themselves, not because they get overrun first. Um, but that that division, at least temporarily now, is gone. One thing that I do want to ask you, because a lot of times when this comes up in conversations or debates, looking at the death count, as you said, going from 2005 at the point in which Israel disengaged or pulled out of Gaza uh, to up to the present, when you look at the death count of Palestinians versus Israelis, you know, it's overwhelmingly much higher for Palestinians and those in, in Gaza than it is for Israelis. That is something that is often brought up as a counterpoint to say, oh, yeah, well, sure, Hamas uh, attacked Israelis and did this horrific thing, but look at how many Palestinians have died at the hands of Israel. What would you say to that argument or, you know, the just the number of casualties on the Palestinian side versus the Israeli side since 2005? The first thing I would say is that I'm not here to tell your listeners um, what political opinions they have, and I'm not here to justify the political opinions of either side. So if you want somebody to do that, I believe there's another famous political analyst out there whose last name is Shapiro, who will supply you all the content in the world you want about whether you should feel righteous or not, or, or not about what's going on. That's not my block. My block is to try and tell you what's going on as objectively as, as I can and give you the information and trust that your listeners are well-developed enough and emotionally ma- mature enough to to have their own views about this. So anything I'm about to say, it's not me telling you what to think. It's me telling you my assessment of what's going on and we can go from there. Um, the reason that the Palestinian death count is so much higher is because that was Israel's grand strategy here. It was the idea of deterrence. So when Palestinians, whether in the West Bank or Gaza, would attack Israel, Israel would go back five or tenfold with the with the expressed goal of making it so that nobody would want to do it again. And all these little mini conflicts that Israel had with Hamas over the years was to reinstall deterrence. At, at least that was the Israeli strategic mindset. It was if you impose a severe enough cost on them, they won't want to do it again. And if you don't impose a severe cost, they will see that as weakness and they will take advantage of you. I think it is safe to say that that strategy or philosophy of deterrence has failed. It has blown up in Israel's face. And I think you can also say that that goes back to the point of complacency and maybe even arrogance in terms of Israel's faith in its own security forces and its own strategies. Because whatever you think about the Palestinians, their lives suck. They're terrible. Uh, they These are generations that feel dispossessed, that have been dispossessed, who have no hope for their children or for any kind of better future. And we don't have to debate about whether that's right or how it's wrong or how they got put there, whether it's Palestinian leaders or Arab states or Israel or anybody else that's hung the Palestinians out to dry. The fact of the matter here is if you lived in the Gaza Strip, your faith in the future would not be particularly bright and your hopes and aspirations for your children would be really dark. And I think that is the other thing to say here, that um, you know, the 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 things that we've seen happen over the last week, they come from people who are desperate 
and who don't have faith in the future and who just, you know, it's sort of a nihilistic, well, I don't care anymore. It's bad enough here. I have to do something, right? I mean, that's me trying to psychoanalyze them to try and give some rationalization for some of the appalling behavior that we've seen, but that's the best I can do. It's just been a very, very difficult situation and the occupation is grueling and it's grueling for both sides. Um, it, I'm, I, I don't do comparative suffering, so I'm not comparing apples to, uh, apples to apples here, but think about, you know, young Israelis who, when Americans are off to college, Israelis are going to the army and they're managing checkpoints at the West bank and the Gaza strip. I can't imagine at the age of 18 years old being in charge of a checkpoint to see if some Palestinian has weapons or is trying to get in from one place to another to try and kill me or attack some of my countrymen or some of my family. This is the context in which young Israelis grow up as well. The, the only sure takeaway I think you can have from all of this is that it's usually the civilians who get screwed. And it's the civilians in Israel and the civilians in, in the Gaza Strip. And that's going to happen here again. Um, you know, Hamas fighters are uh, started this particular round of conflict. The IDF is going back after them, and caught in the crossfire are women and children and elderly people and you know young lives on both sides of the conflict. And the question now is just how far does this spiral? Does this remain an Israeli-Palestinian affair? Does Israel commit an infantry force and and go in and take the casualties necessary to knock them out? And what are the civilian casualties in Gaza as a result? Could it mushroom beyond that? Are we going to start talking about Hezbollah and Syria and Iran and a regional conflict? But the only thing I think that is black and white about this is that it is usually the innocent who suffer the most from these battles. And we're seeing that in real time. And the Palestinians have suffered more because they are the weaker party. That's the that's the uh, inconvenient truth. Yeah. And yeah, another thing too here is that Gaza is extremely, extremely dense. And so if you have rockets firing from Gaza into Israel, well, for one, Israel has the Iron Dome and that's been in place since 2011. So that has prevented a large number of rockets from ever hitting Israel. Israel, especially on the border with Gaza, is not very densely populated. So it is sparse in those regions near Gaza. So, you know, if you're going to have uh, shelling taking place in Gaza, obviously you're just going to be hitting many more people. And then on top of that, I think the other important point is that, you know, Hamas is very well known. And I'd like to get your take on this as well for intentionally digging tunnels and putting their bases in civilian areas as a deterrent. But I, I think that those are some important parts on the why the casualty among the Palestinian side is, is a lot higher as well. Yes, no doubt. I mean, Hamas uses civilians as a shield. Um, I think the the density of the Gaza Strip or the population density of the Gaza Strip has been a little bit overstated. Um, Gaza City is extremely densely populated and places like Khan Yunus and Rafah are also significantly built up and very, very densely populated. The rest of the Strip is actually relatively open area or is focused on agriculture. And there's two ways to think about that. So when the Israelis are telling Gazans, you have to leave, they have nowhere to go. I mean, they can't go into Israel. The borders are blocked. The Rafah border crossing with Egypt is the only way to get And Egypt doesn't want them any more than anybody else would. So they're just sort of stuck. So when Israel is saying that, what they're saying to Gazans is, we are going to level your cities. We're going to level every single building that we can. So go to the open areas, go to the agricultural areas. That's what they're telegraphing there. Um, and you're exactly right, though, that Hamas's strategy 
um, in response to Israel's overwhelming air power relative to what Hamas has. Hamas has no air power to speak of. The only way to fight back against that is to hide among the civilian population and you know hope that the air power and the artillery is not going to um, target you because they don't want to take civilian casualties. And this goes back also to sort of recent history. You might, you know, we talked about disengagement in 2005. We can also talk about Israel's war with Hezbollah in 2006, where Hezbollah captured a couple um, Israeli soldiers at the border. And you got this, uh, you know, months long war between Hezbollah and Israel. And it was not a war that Israel won. Uh, Israel's, uh, the myth of Israel's defense superiority goes back to conflicts that were fought in 1948, 1967, 1973. Since 73, Israel really hasn't performed that well in a war or a conflict. And 73 was also not so great. They got caught off guard. And one of the reasons, if you go back to 2006 in the war with Hezbollah, was because Israel had gotten used to not having to fight wars for its existence. And the Israeli electorate didn't want to take large amounts of casualties that would come if you deploy a ground force into a densely populated area like that. So what did they do in 2006? They relied completely on the Air Force. They said, our tech superiority is going to lead us to victory here. We no longer have to sacrifice young Israeli men and women to fight these conflicts. We can do it with drones and fighter jets and all these other things. And that didn't work. And they weren't willing to commit the infantry. And so you had this stalemate. And that's why Hezbollah is still where it is and why Israel still has that threat on the northern border, which goes to what is Israel going to do now? Are they going? They've called up 360,000 reservists. Have they lost their squeamishness? Is the thousand plus dead Israelis and the almost 200 hostages enough for them to say, okay, like soldiers are going to die in this operation. We need to send in the ground forces because if you are just going to rely on the air force, then groups like Hamas, as you said, they can hide in tunnels, they can hide beneath hospitals, they can hide in schools, and you're never going to get them all. The last thing I would say here is that Hamas is not going to be destroyed no matter what Israel does, because Hamas is an idea and a political movement as much as it is a group today that actually functions as a governing entity within the Gaza Strip. I have no doubt that most of the senior commanders of Hamas in the Gaza Strip will be dead in the next couple of months. A generation of Hamas leaders will get wiped out, and maybe some of the rank and file will get wiped out too. Israel will do everything they can to destroy as much of it as it can. Uh, but the idea of Hamas, Hamas's attractiveness as a movement that will bring desperate people who have no other way to resist what they see as Israeli encroachment on their lives, like Hamas will regenerate itself. We've seen that with Al-Qaeda. We've seen that with ISIS. Um, you really can't destroy an idea like Hamas. And, and that's, you know, that, that's another depressing part of this whole thing and something that th the Israel Defense Forces and a lot of the general media narrative is not taking into account, in my opinion. Yeah. And the basis of that idea is largely that Israel has no right to exist and that they see Israel as occupying their land. So as long as Israel exists, then they're willing to fight against Israel. So that's that's what they're up against, which means, I mean, basically there's very little chance for peace because Israel's not going to give up its statehood and just leave. Yeah. Although I would qualify what you said a little bit, because that is true of Hamas, but it's a secondary thing. Hamas is from the Muslim Brotherhood family tree. So the overarching idea here is that Islam is the answer to all problems and that Islam should dictate politics and that Islamic law should be what governs um, these societies and things like that. So in that sense, Hamas is really part of a larger movement from Islamists within the region to push back against what they see as sclerotic authoritarian dictators supported in some cases by the West, in some cases by uh, what used to be the Soviet Union, now maybe supported by Russia and others. There's this uh, Islamist mentality 
that um, you know Arab nationalism failed and these dictators failed, and that Islam is the only thing that is going to give the people a chance at life and at justice and things like that. Hamas takes that, and that is the overwhelming operating principle, and tacks on a yes. And by the way, from the you know from the river to the sea, so from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea, all should be Palestine, which necessarily means there should be no Israel. Um, but it's it's a secondary and particular point of view from Hamas because you you map on the religious ideology to the Israeli-Palestinian tensions, and that's how you get that toxic cocktail of of ideology in this particular case. Well, let's compare and contrast that to Hezbollah in that case, because uh, Hamas is the much smaller organization. I believe it's Sunni in its orientation. Hezbollah is Shiite and is aligned with Iran, Iran being the main backer of Hezbollah. But Hezbollah, I understand numbers in the tens of thousands or larger than that. I'm sure you have some info there, but uh, I believe Hezbollah also adheres to the same ideology as well. So let's let's get into the larger issues at play. And of course, there is now fighting with Israel and Hezbollah in Lebanon, and I believe now even in Syria. So it's expanded outside of the borders into other countries, the surrounding neighboring countries of Israel. Well, n- not to get too far down in the weeds here, because we could talk all day about the ideological idiosyncrasies of many of these groups. But Hezbollah really comes from a different political tradition. So they are not tied to the Muslim Brotherhood. If Hamas is on the Muslim Brotherhood family tree, um, Hezbollah is on the Iranian Revolution family tree. And as you said, that's Shiite, and it's a very, very different idea. Now, ironically, Israel also has some role in the creation of Hezbollah because Hezbollah gets established during the Lebanese Civil War in the early 1980s. And Israel intervenes in Lebanon at this point and becomes a target um, for this new Shiite group. But it's 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 sort of strange when you lay out the bedfellows here because you have Hamas, which is a Sunni Arab group that comes from the Muslim Brotherhood. You have Hezbollah, which is really a Shiite Arab group that is born of the Lebanese civil war, supported by Iran, which is Shiite but not Arab, and which uses Hezbollah as its proxy inside of Lebanon. And Lebanon has had these civil wars and has been a competition zone between not just Shiite and Sunni Muslims, but also Christians in the Lebanese context, and it has ground Lebanon into dust. Um, Beirut was once known as the Paris of the Middle East, and Lebanon was once, um, by all accounts, a really, really lovely place. Go back and look at uh, pictures of Beirut or of Lebanon in the 1950s, 1960s. I wish I'd been around to enjoy it. It looks like a wonderful place. But all of these factional divisions sort of intersected in Lebanon, and Lebanon has never really recovered from it. Uh, We might even describe Lebanon as a failed state today. But to your point, Uh, This is where the regional escalation scenario really takes hold. If this remains just an Israeli-Palestinian conflict, it's horrible. We're going to be talking about it for a while. It will soak up media headlines, I'm sure. It's not that important. The Israeli-Palestinian conflict is not that important. How different powers outside of the conflict use it, what it means for the relations between the great powers, both in the world and in the region, is very important. But the Israeli-Palestinian conflict itself is really geopolitically not that significant. Uh, what would make it very, very significant is if it escalates beyond an Israeli-Palestinian affair and you start bringing in a Hezbollah or a Syria or especially an Iran. And then we have to start talking about Turkey and Saudi Arabia. And the thing here is that Iran has been supporting Hamas now for a number of years with rockets, with training, with rhetorical solidarity and things like this. And if Israel does go in on the ground or just keeps bombing Gaza at the current clip and starts killing thousands and tens of thousands of Palestinians in the Gaza Strip, Iran looks awfully weak from the point of view of its other proxies. So maybe Iran is going to stand up and say, oh, well, we have to support 
are proxies. Now, what can Iran do to support Hamas? It can tell Hezbollah to open up a second front. It can tell Iranian-backed uh, Shiite militias tied to the Assad regime in Syria to open up another front or to go after Israel. And then if they want to put global pressure on, we start talking about the Strait of Hormuz and you know oil in the Persian Gulf and what Iran can do to block oil exports from the Persian Gulf and make things crazy for oil producers in general, whether it's through Iran itself or through its Houthi militias uh, in the Yemen conflict that have bombed Saudi oil infrastructure before and things like that. And that, I think, is really where everything, or at least where I'm holding my breath here. So you and I are talking here Monday, October 16th, but Israel has not yet gone in yet. And I think Israel has not yet gone in yet because they have to think very, very carefully about the second and third order effects of going in. If they go in in force in Gaza, but they don't leave enough forces to deal with Hezbollah if it decides to open up a front there, well, suddenly they're screwed. And that could be an existential threat to large parts of Israel. Um, I wonder if Israel is also thinking about going after Hezbollah itself. They've evacuated some of the northern border towns. They've bombed Syrian airports multiple times um, in the last week. They have, you know, in retaliation, bombed Hezbollah targets inside of Lebanon itself. I don't think it is terribly far-fetched to imagine Israeli strategic uh, and security officials sitting around the table saying, we have this rare moment here where the society is unified, where public opinion is on our side, or at least more on our side than it's ever been before and probably ever will be because of what Hamas did and because everything was caught on video. Is this the time not just to defang Hamas, but to defang all of these proxies and factions that are on our border? If, if we can't, you know, it's one thing to say that deterrence failed with Hamas, but now that Hezbollah and these other groups have seen what Hamas did, can we really tolerate these groups existing on our borders. I'm not saying that's what about that's what's about to happen, but I can guarantee you that thought process is in their heads. And we have this sort of fourth dimensional chess now between Iran and Israel um, and the United States and Egypt all shuttling back and forth between each other and Turkey and Saudi Arabia all trying to both um, you know, prevent the conflict from escalating out of control, but also trying to assert their own interests within it. So I don't think the escalation scenario is the most likely, but it is not implausible. And you know, it the the scary thing about it is that you can sort of see how one escalation will lead to the next one, sort of like a domino effect or a cascading effect. That's how World War One started. Nobody thought World War One was going to be such a big conflict, but as the dominoes fell, as this country invaded this country and this country's defense alliance was triggered by this event. Suddenly, you know, all of Europe was at war with each other. That is the scary, dangerous thing that would make this much more than a depressing news story for a couple of weeks. It could be the type of thing that upends the balance of power in the region, that disrupts shipping in the Suez, that sends oil prices up $100 a barrel, you know, et cetera. Yeah, that's the greater fear, of course. And it's interesting because as you were talking, you know, I was thinking these recent attacks between the border of Israel and Lebanon. And I believe there's been some reports of fire on the Syrian border as well. You know, I was thinking of of these as Hezbollah taking advantage of the situation and firing rockets into Israel. But it sounds like from what you were saying, correct me if I'm wrong here, but you're talking more about Israel going on the offensive. Well, first, yes, Hezbollah has been taking advantage and has been firing rockets in solidarity. There are also Hamas factions in Lebanon that have been firing their own rockets, like Islamic Jihad and probably even some Hamas members too. Then there's the Syrian, the, the Iranian-backed Syrian militias that also pop off every once in a while. I haven't seen them attack directly, but the reason Israel's hitting Syrian airports preemptively is because they're worried about that. But yes, the scenario I'm proposing to you is that 
Um, I think is the Israeli defense makers are a little too smart to say, okay, we're going to go in in Gaza and hope that Hezbollah doesn't come for us. I, I'm sure that there's a conversation happening within Israel right now about whether they can stomach going after both at the same time. Because if you are, if you do think that Hezbollah is going to attack you, if you go into Gaza, then you have two choices. Don't go into Gaza or hit them first. Um, so, but that's just one scenario. There are lots of different scenarios that lead to the same end, which, which is a regional conflict. Um, the scenarios are what gets both Hamas and Hezbollah in the war at the same time. If that happens, you know, suddenly we're off to the regional war scenarios and the scary things that I talked about. And I'm spending most of my time here, you know, thinking about, okay, what scenarios lead to that and trying to parse the developments and seeing, okay, does this mean we're headed in that particular direction? So I've given, I gave you one scenario about maybe Israel taking the first step. Maybe the IDF is so blinded by rage and is so self-confident in Hezbollah's position not to in, uh, invade that they're going to go after Gaza and not uh, not accept it. Maybe Iran will activate Hezbollah preemptively because they see the writing on the wall. These are all scenarios that we can play about, but it's the activation of two fronts and um, you know, Iran inserting itself about as directly into a conflict as it will that would send us to that scary, much more significant um, from a geopolitical and investment perspective than we are right now. Yeah. And at this point, as you mentioned, you know, we are speaking on Monday, October 16th. So Israel has not launched their ground invasion yet. We're probably moments away from that. And Iran has said that if they do that, that there will be some type of retaliation on their side does not seem as if this is going to end quickly, especially when you're talking about almost 200 Israelis that have been taken hostage. And like we discussed at the very beginning, Hamas already leveraging social media to a very large extent, showing, I mean, babies and infants that have been captured in addition to many other of these hostages. I mean, unless they're willing to give up all of these hostages... It just seems to me the most likely scenario is they're going to continue to be posting um, torture, uh, psychological torture against these children, and Israel is is going to respond the way you would expect. I mean, just imagine 9-11, the way America responded after that incident. It just does not seem that it's going to resolve itself quickly or peacefully in my mind. Certainly not peacefully. And you know, you raise a good point. Maybe Hamas is doing this because they want to go to Israel into invading. Maybe they know that Iran and Hezbollah and whoever else and the other shoe is going to drop once that they once they can attract Israel into an invasion of such a densely populated area. Um, that was Osama bin Laden's thinking too. Al-Qaeda's whole goal was to get the United States involved in the Middle East so that the people would rise up against the uh, secular dictators and overthrow them. All right. Create chaos. Yeah. It didn't work. But that was the strategy. And again, Al-Qaeda, Muslim Brotherhood, that's the Sunni uh, Islamist family tree. So you can sort of imagine that all in the same playbook there. The one thing I would say um, is that I, you know it won't be over uh, peacefully. I think we can say that much. I mean, it already there's already been so much violence that nothing I think we can say here has been peaceful. I do think it will be over relatively quick. And it'll be over relatively quick because the Israeli defense forces, the Israel defense forces, as strong and as capable as they are, this is a very, very small country. And you cannot mobilize all of your reservists in that small a country and keep the economy going and the lights on for an indefinite period of time. That's why all of Israel's major military successes when they mobilize happens in a period of months. Israel can't fight a war like this for 12 months or for 15 months. They have to be swift and they have to be decisive. And then they have to get in a strong enough position to start dictating terms. 
Um, so I, I don't think it's going to be one of these interminable affairs that we're talking about for years or a frozen conflict of attrition like we have between Russia and Ukraine. Um, if this is going to happen, it's going to happen on the order of months. Um, like we won't be here, I think, 12 months from now talking about a war of attrition between Israel and the Gaza Strip and having nothing resolved. That just doesn't work for how Israel set up and it doesn't work for its economy. Mm, okay. So like you said, Israel really has to hit heavy, hit hard right at, immediately because they can't carry on a, a very long extended war. Either that or the threat that Israel is posing has to be significant enough that, as you say, the hostages get released and some kind of situation resolves. You can also just see, I mean, if we'd been talking on Friday, I would have been much more pessimistic about the regional war scenario unfolding. The weekend was that there were small rays of light that said, okay, maybe we're getting back to some sort of pragmatism. Uh, Joe Biden said on 60 Minutes on on Sunday that he he thought it was a, it would be a bad idea, it'd be a mistake for Israel to reoccupy the Gaza Strip. You saw that Israel uh, turned back on water supplies for parts of southern Gaza, so bowing to pressure about the overall siege of the Gaza Strip. A little bit of daylight there. Um, Qatar has reportedly been negotiating um, hostage release with Hamas, trying to encourage Hamas to release at least the women and the children and the elderly. Um, Hamas's response to that was, okay, if Israel releases an equal number of Palestinian youths and women, we're happy to make that on a one-to-one -one exchange. And reportedly, Israel said, you know, go screw yourself to that offer, but they're talking. It's not radio silence, right? We have media reports about Qatar and Egypt and Turkey and shuttle diplomacy and people trying to get Hamas to move and considering back and forth. Um, so it's not, you know, on Friday, none of this was happening. On Friday, it was the Israeli war machine is getting ready to pound Gaza. It'll happen over the weekend. The Israeli war machine is still worrying, but we have all of this diplomatic activity happening around the edges because I think people are really, really afraid in the region of a broader conflagration. And we have these little signs that, okay, like it's no longer just <laughs> like they were supposed to have invaded on Saturday. Like we've been waiting for the moment you know, any day now, which maybe that's psychological warfare. Maybe that's Israel's thinking of other issues. Maybe they're hoping that the threat is going to be enough to secure the release of the hostages. And if you get that, maybe we can start talking about winding this down without an invasion. Um, but, you know, it's just a lot is uncertain right now. A lot is really volatile. It's it's very hard to decide what's going to happen next. And without special, you know, access to Israeli decision makers, I'm not willing to say one way or another what's most likely. And going back to something you just said, Hamas is saying that they would be willing to give up hostages if Israel is willing to concede something on their end. Mm -hmm. What is that exactly? What would be the negotiation there? Yeah, there are thousands of Palestinian prisoners in Israeli jails, some of whom are held. Um, you know, they don't have the same type of Bill of Rights that we do. The Israeli democratic system uh, has a lot of virtues and I would it qualifies as a liberal democracy. But as you can imagine, in a state with as many security threats as Israel, um, maybe some of the some of the uh, specific laws about arrests and things like that would probably surprise you and how illiberal they are or what um, what uh, authority they give to Israeli security forces if they think someone poses a threat. So when Hamas is saying that they're talking about um, Palestinians who are in jail in Israeli prisons for whatever reason, some of them might be in prison just under suspicion of doing something without having done something, but it's it's a one to one prisoner exchange. It's apparent that's apparently that's what Qatar was proposing and Hamas was considering. Take that all, of course, with a grain of salt. But again, it, it is at least evidence that they're talking, that there is some some semblance, basic semblance of a negotiation going on. Got it. Well, Jacob, we did cover a lot of territory. So, is there anything about this conflict that we didn't discuss today? Do you think that is worth mentioning before we close out? 
Yeah, I think we have to spend a couple of minutes talking about Saudi Arabia because, uh, and I'm very confused about Saudi Arabia, and I think the media reporting about Saudi Arabia has been very spotty. Um, you know, right before this happened, uh, so two weekends ago now, late Friday, there was this news that, uh, you know, Saudi Arabia and the United States were moving towards a deal where normalization with Israel would be part of a broader reset in Saudi-U.S. relations, uh, where the United States would offer maybe a defense security pact to Saudi Arabia, would approve a civilian nuclear program for Saudi Arabia, help with tech transfer and things like that, put aside my feelings about the notion of the U.S. government providing <laughs> civilian nuclear technology to Saudi Arabia. It makes, makes my head want to explode, but we can talk about my politics some other time. Uh, but that was the thing that happened literally the day before Hamas went in. And there's this idea that Hamas did this to scuttle the Saudi-Israel normalization, or maybe Iran pushed Hamas to do this at this point in time uh, to scuttle that. Um, I'm not really convinced of that. Uh, I'm not convinced that Saudi Arabia really wants that in the first place. Uh, maybe they do want the U.S. defense pact. I don't know. It doesn't really make sense with you know their main customers now are in Asia. It's not the United States. The logic of the U.S.-Saudi relationship is broken down, but maybe they were still afraid of Iran. Um, their role in all this is going to be, I think, really, really pivotal. And I think it was really telling that last week, at the end of last week, uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman had his first phone call with Iranian President Ibrahim Raisi. So, you know, they had a, a Chinese brokered uh, resumption of ties, diplomatic ties earlier in the year. Uh, but, you know, last week, Saudi Arabia is on the phone with Iranian leadership. And apparently any chance at normalization is at least tabled for now. So I think a lot here is going to depend on Saudi Arabia and their fears and what they're seeing, um, whether they can convince Iran to de-escalate, whether they're even thinking about de-escalating, whether they just want to be neutral, whether they really are going to tack more towards the United States. They are they are a big wild card here. Um, and I, I would be lying to you if I said I had a very good handle on kind of what's next, but watch what they're doing because they are still the big oil producers in the region. They are the ones that are most afraid of Iran and feel like the United States hung them out to dry with the Iran nuclear deal and everything else. And and it's a, it's a very difficult geopolitical position for them to navigate this. And maybe that's what Iran wanted the whole time. I'm not sure. Well, Jacob, as we close out, um, can you tell our listeners a little bit more about cognitive investments? And also, I understand that you're going to be doing a, a pretty regular programming schedule talking about how things evolve from here as well on your podcast. So yeah, tell our listeners some of the various ways that they can follow some of your work. Sure. The easiest way is just come to our website. It's cognitive.investments. Um, we're a registered investment advisor that really sort of focuses on the boutique level international investments and things like that and have strategies geared towards that for both individuals and institutions. I also do consulting and advisory services for individual companies, whether it's other wealth managers or you know tech companies or agricultural companies, things like that. The podcast is called Cognitive Dissidents, uh, which was a clever pun, but everybody has trouble pronouncing. So I guess I wish I could go back in time and change it, but I like the pun. So anyway, uh, you can find it on the website. Um, yeah, we put out a we put out an episode every day last week, except for Sunday. So Monday through Saturday, every day. I'm gonna I'm going straight from this interview with you to recording with a, a Turkish foreign policy expert that I'm about to have on. I doubt we'll be able to keep up the cadence that we did last week, but um, we're trying as much as possible to put objective information about this conflict into the media ecosystem because there is just so much nonsense and so much ideological garbage out there. It's it's actually very, very difficult to find people who are just trying to give you the information, just trying to give you a sense of what's going on and let you decide for yourself. So I'm channeling all of my 
pain and anguish about what's going on in the region into trying to provide that. And if it's useful, uh, feel free to check us out. Well, again, we've been speaking with Jacob Shapiro, Partner Director of Geopolitical Analysis at Cognitive Investments, an expert on the Middle East. The website is cognitive.investments, and the podcast is Cognitive Dissidents. And Jacob, as always, it's a pleasure to have you on and speak with you. We look forward to speak with you in the future as well. Thanks, Chris. I hope uh, I hope next time we get to talk about something more fun, like Polish elections and the future of the European <laughs> Union, but it'll have to wait for a different time. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. All right, Jacob. Well, take care and uh, yeah, all the best to you. That concludes our weekend edition of the Financial Sense News Hour. To speak with our financial planning and wealth management team, give us a call at 888-486-3939 or go to financialsense.com and click where it says contact us. If you aren't already a subscriber to our weekday podcast and would like to listen to more of our content where we regularly interview book authors, industry experts, and strategists from around the globe, Go to Financial Sense and hit the subscribe button. On behalf of Financial Sense News Hour and the Financial Sense Wealth Management Team, we hope you have a pleasant weekend. The Financial Sense News Hour is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be considered as a solicitation or offer to purchase or sell any securities. The investments, investment strategies, and investment philosophies discussed or presented on the News Hour each involve their own unique risk factors, which are not discussed on the show. Responses to listener inquiries are based on the personal opinions of the Financial Sense staff and do not take into account listener suitability, objectives, or risk tolerance. Financial Sense News Hour and its parent company shall not be liable for any financial losses that result from investing in any companies mentioned in Financial Sense or arising out of the use of any material on the News Hour. Be advised that you invest at your own risk. <laughs>